Laura London, and this is a special video edition of Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 132 is Jungian analyst and physicist, Dr. Robert Matthews in Adelaide, Australia. He holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the Flinders University of South Australia, where he worked in research for many years. He later went on to earn a graduate diploma in education from the University of Adelaide, and since 2003 has worked as a senior lecturer in their School of Education. In 2007, he received a Diploma of Counseling and Communications from Kranz International College and began training as a Jungian analyst, later earning a Diploma of Analytical Psychology from the Research and Training Center for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz in Zurich. Dr. Matthews worked as a physics and mathematics teacher and curriculum writer for the Australian Science and Mathematics School and has lectured on Jungian religion at the University of South Australia and on neuroscience and education at the University of Canberra. Since 2015, he has served as president of the C.G. Jung Society of South Australia, and recently he presented Unifying Depth Psychology and Physics for the Pacifica Graduate Institute in California and Union of the Imaginary and the Real at the Psychology Club in Zurich. His book chapters include Teaching Out of the Unconscious, The Role of Shadow and Archetype in The Seeker, Papers in Honor of John P. Keeves, A Depth Psychology Account of the Creative Imagination, Applying the Psychology of Carl Jung in Imagination in Educational Theory and Practice, and on Freud and Jung in Stephen Stoltz's new book, The Body, Embodiment, and Education. Dr. Matthews is the author of The Paradoxical Meeting of Depth Psychology and Physics, Reflections on the Unification of Psyche and Matter, published by Routledge in 2022 as part of the Research in Analytical Psychology and Jungian Studies book series under Professor Andrew Samuels. Other titles in the series include Jung's Reception of Picasso and Abstract Art, Jung, Dante, and the Making of the Red Book, and Alchemy, Jung, and Remedius Vero. My interest in Dr. Matthew's work began when I read these words in the preface to his book. He writes, My first fascination was with the cosmos above, but fate had other ideas. It led me to a PhD not in astrophysics, but in solid state physics. It was much later after reading alchemy that I realized the two are one, that the starry firmament above is mirrored in the earth below, but no physics laboratories talk of such things anymore. You can help Speaking of Jung stay on the air by visiting our support page at speakingofyoung.com support where you will find information on how to make a one-time or recurring donation, shop our Amazon storefront, register for online video courses, which now include the past two Jung Memorial Lectures by Donald Kalshed and Anne Yulinoff, as well as a new course by James Hollis, shop online using our discount codes, and interact with us on social media. And our Patreon should be going live sometime this month perks. There will be perks. Today's episode is made possible by Temenos Dream. 
the revolutionary new Dream Tracking app available for iOS and Android. Now you can record your dreams by speaking into your phone or typing them into the app. Keep your dreams organized, search the built-in symbol dictionary, and have AI illustrate and now interpret your dreams, all within the app. You can help support Speaking of Young simply by downloading the app and creating a free account by clicking on the link in the description box below or on our website, speakingofyoung.com, where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This video interview is being recorded on Wednesday, February 7th, 2024, through the magic of StreamYard. Hi, Dr. Matthews. Hello, Laura. How are you? I'm doing really well. How are you today? Yeah, very good. And thank you for that introduction. And thank you for all you do for the Speaking of Young listeners. I'm, I know a lot of people appreciate it. Oh, thank you for saying that. We are still here um, almost nine years now. And I really appreciate you taking the time to join us today. I know it's kind of late there in Australia. It's very early here in Chicago. And we've had a little bit of a technical glitch, which we're kind of chalking off to the Pally effect. Um, but here, but here we go. So um, my, I, I don't think you, I told you this in, in our correspondence, but um, basically your book is about what you call the ring I or the ring E. And I don't know if you noticed, and you can see right up here, the new Speaking of Young logo, it's relatively new, about a year, a year old. I chose this font because of the letter O in the word of that you see. Hmm. Does that look familiar? It does. It, does. it just needs a little I and an R in there, and you've got the, the ring I. Exactly, right. So I had been seeing that um, symbol, and when I took a tour of the psychology club in Zurich, which I know you've been to, I mentioned that you recently gave a talk there, uh, in their library, I don't know if it's still there, but the red book, the copy of the red book that they have in the library that's in the glass case is open to page 127, which is the painting that Jung did of that symbol. That's a gorgeous one, isn't it? Yeah. So I was a little surprised to see that. I, I shouldn't have been uh, in your book, and which we will get into. But I want to start at the beginning, which is how you are a physicist. You're a theoretical physicist. And now you're practicing as a Jungian analyst. So I'd like for you to share with us that road, that path that you took. Of course. Um... I'm not quite sure if I call myself a physicist anymore. I guess it's been a while since I was in the profession, uh, but it's still in in my it's still a part of me. Um, so, yes, I I was first off in my twenties. It was physics that most interested me, and I was very keen to do a, a PhD, which I did, um, but I was exhausted um, at the end of it. I must say as many people are when they, they finish their PhDs. Um, and it's then that I kind of went wandering a little bit and I took off and ended up somehow in uh, Indonesia studying uh, traditional music, of all things. Um, and someone gave me this book of The Power of Myth by Joseph Campbell. 
And Campbell, of course, was um, he well regarded uh, Jung's psychology. And it was reading Campbell that I first came across Jung and started to get very interested. Um, and then when I when I returned to Australia, I I did I did return to to physics off and on, uh, but it never really satisfied me after that. Um, there was something something more I wanted, something that uh, I didn't speak to, and it was much later that I I realised that it was this this whole inner life, this spiritual life that uh, we've lost touch with, um, and that's what I was yearning for. Uh, but it took me a while more wandering. I did some sociology and philosophy and other things, and I could never find a, an anchor point in those subjects. They were, they were intellectually interesting, um, but they didn't they didn't centre me. They didn't um, put me in touch with with my my life as a, it seemed to be. Um, and out of interest, I started uh, Jungian analysis around that time. Uh, and it was that's what really keyed it for me. It was the very first session I remember. The fantastic woman, Ruth Fox, and about halfway through the session, it just hit me like a uh, one of those those crystal clear thoughts that here is something that combined my interest in research alongside my interest in self exploration and a spiritual life, and suddenly the two were offered together in this process. And uh, it was then so clear that I should, um, if I wanted to do research in this area, I'd need to become a, um, an analyst as well. And so then became my search for uh, where I should train and how I can do that, how I can afford to do that, as, we, as often is the problem. Um, the next, what, had, uh, I then decided that uh, how would I get to, to Switzerland to train? Um, and I had the idea if I trained as a teacher, um, then as, as a school teacher, uh, then I could move to Switzerland or somewhere nearby as with a job at an um, international school and finance myself to train. But in the during that time, uh, the Australian and New Zealand uh, organisation decided they would offer uh, a new training. Uh, and I, so I started with them. Um, and I did that training for about two years. It was um, uh, very interesting training. They, they uh, wanted to do a, uh, an eclectic offering uh, where they would offer, um, if you know, the, there's an Andrew Samuels kind of classification of Jung approach, which is post-Jung, developmental Jung, and classical Jung. And they decided they would offer all three as the uh, foundation for their, their training course. Um, I did the first two years. It, I think they struggled a little bit to offer much in the classical area. They offered much more in the developmental because uh, a lot of the training analysts were out of the SAP in London, which is Fordham School, which is a very developmental orientation. Um, and so I was getting a bit dissatisfied and then by chance I met Frith Luton who had just finished training at the Centrum in Switzerland and in talking to her I suddenly remembered a dream I had had which spoke about me training a distance from Zurich out, uh, where 
it would be affordable and uh, where they would be close to the unconscious. Um, that dream suddenly made sense and I decided I would switch my training across to uh, the Centrum in, in Switzerland, uh, which, which I then did. And I, very early on, I, I realised that was the, the right choice and I had some very supportive dreams that confirmed that uh, here is, is where I'm going to find that research and that uh, self-development interest that um, was, was um, awakened me. Frith, you mentioned Frith Luton. She's been a guest on this podcast uh, twice, and she's wonderful. We love her. Uh, and your story about paying attention to your dreams is a great example. Pay attention to your dreams. Uh, they, they're a guide, right? So let's talk about your... Do you want to talk? get into your new book? I say new because... Amazon is listing it as being released in uh, in January, and you mentioned that the hardcover was published by Routledge in 2022, and this new release is the paperback edition, right? And what I noticed about that book uh, is that your, I'm looking for it here, your dedication, you dedicated it to all your spiritual teachers, Carl Jung, Marie-Louise von Franz, and many others. So you, this is a spiritual journey for you, right? I mean, you, it's, it's about physics and depth psychology, and, and that's what I want to get into with you. But how, and I, I guess you, you really did touch on that, how this was a spiritual journey for you. Yeah, I guess that was maybe one of the reasons I felt more comfortable at the Centrum because I think mm -hmm. that's that's where they hold. Um, I, the Centrum, maybe to explain a little bit, was uh, yeah. set up by von Franz and analysts from the Jung Institute that um, went with her when, when there was some disagreements. I'm not exactly sure what they were, but... Um, uh, von Franz left, and and they together they they set up in this new training. Uh, the structure was very similar to the the institute, uh, same assessment process. The Jung Institute, the CG Jung Institute yeah. in yeah. Zurich, yeah. now Kuznacht. Yep. Um, and uh, so they, but being von Franz, who is, um, I think, I, I think Jung says somewhere that she was the one that really understood. Uh, his ideas, and yeah. you know, and I think the Centrum, now I mean, von Franz has passed, of course, but I think the Centrum's tried to uh, hold to that that conviction, that closeness of, of Jung's regard for the self uh, and the, the autonomous psyche or objective psyche. Um, and that's what they, that's what they send her around. And for me, that, uh, of course, has a spiritual uh, flavour to it. Um, Certainly, a, it's a whole wholeness, a, a depth to it. Would you share with the listeners who might be interested in doing this themselves, your training at the Centrum, and that's short for the Center for, it's a long, it's a long title, it is, uh, isn't it? the Center for Research and Training for Depth Psychology, according to C.G. Jung and Marie-Louise von Franz. So living in Australia, how did you navigate that? And how many years did it take from start to finish? Yeah, and it's a 
coming out of Australia, it, it's not an easy path. In, uh, in as I said before, in Adelaide where I live, um, there's very few Jungian analysts, and there's not not um, so there's not the possibility to have too many conversations directly. Uh, and it was just by chance that I met Frith, and Frith gave me that idea. Um, but before that, I was. If Australia hadn't opened up, I would have probably gone to the the CG Institute in uh, in Kuznacht, but um, and that could have been a right the right move as well. Who knows? Um, but I think because of the internet now, and there's uh, there's a lot more information available um, to try and find out what are the the processes, what are the requirements. Um, of course, there's a, a an analytic hours is the uh, primary re requirement to get into training, uh, plus usually some form of tertiary study um, and maybe a postgraduate level. Um, the Australian training also wanted uh, some kind of psychotherapeutic qualification, which is why I, I did the counselling uh, qualification. Yeah. Um, the I think others other places don't necessarily need that uh, and then it's you know you contact these places you find out you know what's what time commitment is required um some trainings have a uh, a block course structure like the institute and and um, the centrum where you're there for two three weeks a block course maybe two or three times a year uh, other places like you to live in, in situ, live live uh, uh, during the, a year or two. And I think um, ISAP, which is the other training centre in Switzerland, I think they still require um, people to, to live uh, and be, be coming daily uh, as, a, as part of the, the practice, at least initially in the training. Yeah. Um, so there's, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's different across the world now, and I know in America there's there's other possibilities as well, and there's so many trainings. Um, most of them sit under the uh, IAAP, the Analytical Psychology um, Governing Body. Yeah. Um, this is the Centrum doesn't. This is interesting that they uh, they've been offered to join the IAAP, but they refuse on the basis of they don't want to adopt a a formal political ethics structure in place of um, the appealing to the the self and to the to dreams uh, to um, as the guiding factor in making these sorts of um, judgments and decisions and I think that's kind of that in gives you some hint of the of the flavor of, of the training at the centrum mm -hmm. yeah I love that so how long did it take you to complete your training. I, I, I bring that up and I ask you, I, I know that it's rather personal, but there, there are a lot of, there are a lot of, there's a lot of misunderstanding that I see about becoming a Jungian analyst, what it takes. And, and that's mm. why I want my guests to talk about just what was involved with their training. Uh, so in this instance, there, there were two, um, two block courses a year for each of two weeks that, that I, we attended. Uh, and so there's a lot of travel backwards and forth. Mm -hmm. um, people on average, I think, would spend about six, seven years to finish their training, maybe a bit longer. 
Um, I went a bit over that and I was quite happy to, I was in no rush at all and mm -hmm. to, to finish. And for me, it was, um, it was all part of the, the, the process and I, I as a, and as, as an organic process and I, I didn't want to rush it um, until near the end when I kind of, okay, that's enough is enough and I need yeah. to get on and, and, and finish this and get the, the piece of paper. So, so that happened. And um, so I think a bit over 10 years for me and that's, that's that, that's not that unusual either, I would say, for right. some people. Right. But it, it's I, a I, huge, huge investment. I think it's great because it just goes to show how deep this work is and how much time it takes. And real change uh, happens at depth and it can't be done in six months or two years or even five years. So uh, I, I applaud you for sticking with it and, and doing the work. So your book, was that your thesis? Uh, yes, it came out of the thesis I did for, as part of the training. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about it because it's such an interesting book and there's so much in here and I don't want to miss anything. Um, you, you start by saying that projection on the stars above is breaking down or actually has broken down. And that kind of sets the stage for me uh, for this work. So what, what do you mean by that? Would you say a little bit more about that? Projection on the stars above is breaking down. Sure. Um, I think there's, there's an old idea that um, has been uh, a governing principle for um, many, many cultures. And it's this, this old idea that... Um, uh, the heavens above and the order uh, in the heavens above. So the way the gods move around, the planets move around, and uh, the backdrop of the, the stars. And you can think a bit of astrology here if you like. Um, that heavenly order is mirrored in the organization or the flow of life down uh, on, on Earth. And so as a lot of you would know, the, the Emerald Tablet, um, in, it introduces this, the above uh, as as above, so below, and so below as as above. So the two mirror one another and inform one another. Um, and that was I, I was very interested. And here's my love of Joseph Campbell again. Mm -hmm. uh, he identified that this is a an essential quality that comes out of um, every city state uh, across the planet as they as they emerged. Uh, as far back as 3000 BC in Mesopotamia uh, and Egypt. And then it's this, this idea of above and below spreads across uh, through to um, Crete and Greece and then into India, China, and then ultimately South America. And they each had their own form of it. Uh, but it seems that as soon as you get a, a, as a larger population as a city, you need some kind of organisational um, archetypal symbol or structure mm. uh, to hold the, the chaos of the city together. And so the order of the above starts to become a, a guiding factor for below. Um, now, that lasted off and on till uh, certainly through into the Renaissance for, for us. Uh, it, kind of, it waxed and waned as, as you go through the Middle Ages, but um, 
when certain texts from uh, Arabia started coming in to the uh, into the West in the 12th and 13th century, and certainly into the uh, the Renaissance, um, this became such a, a lived principle once again. And people were very, very aware that their life was a, a little microcosm of the, the big cosmic macrocosm up, up there. And the two were, were united. Um, now, I had a, what started the book was I had a, a dream which began in a physics laboratory, which was the kind of life down here. And then in a kind of uh, a moment of, in the dream, it's called a moment of resonance. Um, and the window to the laboratory suddenly appears. It was sealed before then, and I see the uh, the cosmos outside. Um, and so, and so I realised at the end, this dream was putting me back into this view of of above and below having a, a connection uh, in the language of the dream, a resonance. Um, now, with the advance of modern science. Uh, that connection that has lived for so long and guided us for so long uh, was dissolved. And so the, the heavens above, who, you know, we know Mars is, you know, the, the, the god of aggression and, and war and so on, or, or Aries, if you prefer. Um, and so all, all the planets have their, their cosmic meaning and inform and play a part and in our own psychic structure. Um, Modern science was no, no longer interested in that. They, they were yeah. it became really interested in just there's a, a a material mass up there, a body, a planet. It has this motion around uh, the sun, and uh, there's no animation to it. There's no it has no effect on on our 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 life, our psyche, our emotional state. Um, and it's it's hard for us to to think in these terms anymore. But these Renaissance people really believed that the flow of the the stars above, the planets above, um, had such a, a visceral effect on our on on the flow of on our state of our mind, on the state of our emotions, etc. Um, now, Jung, of course, saw that one way of understanding this psychologically is that we're projecting our inner structure our psychodynamics, our complexes, etc. we're projecting those into the, the heavens above. And so we're indirectly where we're able to um, work out our unconscious through this projection onto the, the heavens. Um, that collapsed and we no longer had that um, capacity to, um, to know ourselves. We could only know ourselves through this modern science of you know, we're a, we're a material thing and we've got neural connections and so on and so on. Um, but there's no means to um, come to terms with the, uh, the, this spiritual side of us, this, this rich emotional side of us, our instinctual side, etc. Could I you just know? jump in here? I'd like to ask you, what do you think led to that collapse? You said that that way of of seeing things collapsed. Is it did. that yeah? Do, do you know what precipitated that? Um, Jung thought that 
there was there was that that time of the Renaissance was a time when um, all the the focus of the of the medieval time. If you look at the Gothic cathedrals and etc., there were huge amounts of resources put into the vertical to uh, reaching up to the those those heavenly bodies and ultimately to God. Um, something happened in the Renaissance, and it happened out of the the depths in us. Uh, the word for it is an anuncio dramia, which is a horrible Latin word that it just it means that there's a reversal in focus, and so everything that was vertically focused suddenly became horizontally focused, and we're not so much interested in uh, in God, but we're much more interested in man after this this switch, mm-hmm. and man takes um, and Jung will talk about the. Medieval mandalas had God in the center of them, but the Renaissance and beyond had nothing in the center of them. There was just this this question mark: What is now our center? Uh, and the suddenly this this interest, and you have art suddenly sh- shifts, and you have realistic art, Da Vinci, and through the Renaissance and so on. So reality becomes primary, and you have mathematicians. Uh, such as Kepler, Johannes Kepler, that that um, who was very aware of the above and below, but he became more interested in uh, quantifying and describing the motion of the planets rather than using them to animate his his um, his lived life. And so, gradually, that movement, that focus into the horizontal. Um, takes more and more root uh, and the connection with the cosmic powers is is lost uh, and so initially yes Kepler was a very much a Christian and had strong beliefs um, Newton also uh, who continued this new science it was also it was an alchemist um, so he also had his was both were alive for a time um, but as the new science took more and more root uh, and quantification um, became more and more a focus and I would we often lay blame at Descartes for this one because mm. yeah. Descartes came along and developed his um, Cartesian system probably out of a dream that he had and the Cartesian system is astounding because it allows you to map these horrible equations that terrified everyone at school you can get those equations and you can put them onto a graph and suddenly you've got geometry and algebra being expressed together and you can hold physical processes on sheets of paper and diagrams and calculate them and it just it takes off from there mm-hmm. and it becomes such a powerful um, vehicle for uh, understanding and manipulating the processes of the physical world and it's it just washes over this this these remnants of, of alchemy and, and these other things just drop away more and more and through the 17th century. Uh, and by the 18th century, there's, there's not that much left. So in the book, one of the main points that you make is that Jung, you say, open the door to three possible ways of renewal. Excellent. Yes. Yes. Would you like to get into that now? Uh, so, to kind of 
the word renewal, why is the word renewal used here? Is it because of what you were just explaining and how we yeah. had sort of lost lost our way? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm -hmm. So so for Jung, um, I mean, we only have an unconscious, we only have a psychology such as Jung's because we lost our projection onto the heavens above. And all That's of so that, key. yeah, all of that value that we, we projected into the heavens, all that libido, that, that energy mm -hmm. that, um, and you, it's kind of hard for us to really, really key into how much it was, but it was, it was very strong. Um, all that in that, that when you, when you take away those, those religious forms, uh, the energy then has to go somewhere and it drops back down into the unconscious and it activates something new. And I think partly what it activated was uh, Jung's depth psychology. Um, and so now, so out of his psychology, then he's, he's wondering, okay, so where are we today? We, if, if depth psychology is going to be the replacement of what we had previously, this this above and below the correspondence theory and other things, um, is it possible to find in this new uh, scientific approach, this psychological approach, uh, something that is uh, speaks to the same um, potency as the yeah. the old correspondence idea? So he comes up. And it's just, it's remarkable what he's what he did. I mean, he comes up with um, first the mandala symbol, um, and that's when he's working in what 1917 in a prisoner of war camp, doing his experiment on mandalas. And it takes quite it takes a, quite a few years, but he realizes this: the mandala is is his his expression of the microcosm, his expression of wholeness, his expression of his outer and inner world and the current state that it's in. So it gives him the, the beginnings of this, this correspondence between inner and outer. Okay, so that, a, the mandala uh, is the first way. So we're, we're talking about the three possible ways of renewal. The first one is the mandala. Yes, exactly. And you've got the, the a mandala symbol in your, your sign. Speaking of Jung, as you said before, uh, the, the O of the of. Um, and the four quarter mandala in the circle is is probably the most common one, but there are there are many many different forms of it. Um, but for Jung, he realizes, especially and it's the high point for him was the Liverpool dream, which is in memories, dreams, reflections, and that's where he really nails that you know the mandala is, you know, it is this total view of of what my life is, not just my conscious perception, but you know the the total view. Uh, and so it's it's a wholeness, and so that's where the 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 unity, the complete, is is restored uh, for the, for that aspect of what the mandala um, carries for each of us when when we receive one. In that moment, in that snapshot, your wholeness, your unity is restored once again. Um, later, next, he of course he's he's. Carrying this idea, which later turns into this this notion of synchronicity, mm. uh, and that's that's an idea that was with him for a long part of his life, I think, uh, and eventually, partly out of conversation with Wolfgang Pauli, the physicist who we might talk a bit about on later, yeah, uh, that helped him a lot to uh, get the the right terminology for 
um, this idea of synchronicity, which again is this moment in time where the inner and the outer become unified. And so the, you have a, um, an experience um, of something that goes on in, in the outside world, of an, a, an event, and it, uh, the quality of it, the, the meaningfulness of it coincides uh, with something that's going on in your, your inner state, in a dream, or, for example. Um, and the two coincide in, in a, in a meaning, meaningfulness. Um, and when you have these synchronicities, if you have a, enough of them, you start to really, they start to click and you start to really, oh, okay, there is really something here. Um, but it takes a little bit of experience with them uh, because they're, you know, they're, they're such a, a different way of seeing the world from the materialistic viewpoint. They're kind yeah. of much more like an old Chinese viewpoint. Mm. Uh, and so if you were from old China, you would, you see the world synchronistically. That's how you understand mm. events. And you would think our modern science and causality is a, is a very strange thing indeed. Right. And that's the second way. I just want to, for the listeners, the first is mandala. Uh, these are the three possible ways of renewal. The second is synchronicity. Yes. And so, so the mandala gives you kind of a snapshot mm. of your personal life. Um, they can be cosmic mandalas, but uh, they give you a facet. Um, the synchronicity gives you... Uh, Again, a moment in time. So it's it's a it's only a momentary uh, connection between the inner and outer. It's not a constant lived one. Right. Yeah, it's just it's a, so Jung talks about them as uh, creative uh, moments, creative acts uh, in time, um, because they're just around that that instant. And we maybe we'll give some examples if you like. Yeah. Uh, in, in a minute, but um, uh, so there's not quite the full correspondence yet. Um, and Jung had pondered this heavily, I think, especially near the end of his life. And he, he talks, um, and no doubt out of conversations with Pauli, um, and he comes, his, his feeling is that uh, natural number is the one, that natural number is going to be the, um, the one that can show that there is an underlying bridge between the inner and the outer, um, so that the two reflect one another, not just as in synchronous moments, uh, but in, in a broader way, in a more ordered way. And that's three. And that would be the third that's one. That's the third so, way. Mm -hmm. So natural number. Now, that one is very difficult to explain. And he, Jung didn't write too much about it because um, it was near the end of his life and he felt it was a bit too much. Um, he wrote down a lot of notes. He gave it off to von Franz. Um, von Franz didn't really want to take it up because it was a, it's a big problem, but she did, and she did it great, great justice and produced a book, Number and Time. And there she lays out for the first four numbers how those numbers um, work in the outside world to order physical process um, and also... In different ways so each each number has its own characteristic quality um, and that mirrors the same way we see number ordering psychic contents so in the inner world um, and the for example the the three three in a, a dream um, is usually it's a dynamic process that's in 
un unfolding, unfolding in time. Um, so if I see someone, a client, they have a, a three in the dream, I know that something's going to drive forward, drive ahead in a certain direction. Two, it's not. Two is ambivalent and it's not, not uh, clear what path there will be. But three, mm. usually there is a dynamic there. Um, same thing in the outer world. If there's a, a three is a, a characteristic of a physical process, um, then that's going to be a, something that drives open in, in time. Um, and I think just the passage of, of uh, the flow of time, past, present, future, is our classification for that is perhaps one example that you can take. There are others in the in von Franz's book if you're interested in this question. Mm -hmm. um, now, that third way, the number, I think von Franz opened the door, but there's a huge amount of work to be done there. Uh, and for some reason, it hasn't attracted too much attention, and I'm not quite sure why not. Mm -hmm. I agree. So let's get into quantum physics, quantum mechanics, because the title of your books, The Paradoxical Meeting, and we need to talk about paradox, The Paradoxical Meeting of Depth Psychology and Physics, Reflections on the Unification of Psyche and Matter. And you were just talking about number and whole number and that being uh, Jung's third out of the, the three possible ways of renewal. You mentioned that classical physics operates at the level of the three, but quantum mechanics at the level of the four. And that was another, just as an aside, there's usually a connection between episodes that I do and none of it's planned. I don't think I ever mentioned mm. that before. I don't think I ever said that out loud. It's not planned. So the previous guest I had, Professor Paul Bishop at the University of Glasgow in Scotland, his book was Why Must the Third Become the Fourth is the subtitle of the book that, that we, that episode focused on. And now here in your book, you talk a lot about the three and the four. So let's get into that, um, the problem of uniting psyche and matter. I'll let you take it away. It's like material, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, all right. Uh, the three and the four, I, these, this, this, I, it comes out of origin, mostly for us, it comes from uh, looking back through uh, mythic writings and particularly alchemy. And alchemy was was very rich in this question of of, of three and four. Um, Jung felt we come from a, a trinitarian religion, Judeo-Christian. Yeah, this has a trinity in it, um, and the missing fourth. If three gives you a dynamic surge in direction, um, but the four centers you back onto. Um, a living center that you can find relationship to. And so when you're in the three, you're kind of, um, you're in motion, um, but you're not turning around um, a center. And mm. for you, for individuation, for wholeness, um, many, many times you'll talk about you need this, this centering factor. Uh, you need to be turning around a, an anchor point uh, within yourself. Um, if you're going to um, take this next step to individuation, which is why the, the four becomes such an important quality. Um, now, I think if you look at uh, the, the way um, 
19th century physics and Newtonian physics, we call it classical physics. Um, it's all about describing processes moving forward in time. And there's, there's not a lot of question around, um, you know, is there, is there something we need to stop and consider and ponder? Um, but when you get to, to quantum physics, uh, suddenly consciousness has a, hits a brick wall because um, you're working with systems that you no longer know or no longer can, you have to admit defeat. Um, that you can't know what's going on within the system, all right? You can, you can design an experiment and that experiment will allow reality to reveal itself to you in certain ways, um, but you, you will never be able to uh, isolate exactly what is going on in the experiment in, in any individual process. Um, and so that... that grand hope of we can master all processes and know them, which is how they felt at the end of the 19th century, uh, suddenly is defeated and it's thrown into this, this kind of paradoxical chaos almost of uh, sometimes it's a wave, sometimes it's a particle, uh, depends on how we design the experiment. Um, if we do the experiment often enough, then we start to get a, a statistical and predictive um, handle on what's going on. Uh, but the, the people that pioneered this, like Niels Bohr, who's, um, uh, his description of reality becomes one of um, reality appears to us uh, as, it, as it chooses. Not as we, we, we no longer know what reality is. We can only know the way, uh, we, we can only see it's the appearance of reality uh, as it makes itself known to us. And so there's, suddenly there's this unknown point in integral into the understanding of the physical object. We just, there's, there's the bit we know and then there's the bit we don't know and we, can't, we cannot know. And somehow we have to coexist and accept um, that that's the way our uh, conscious experience of these experiments leaves us feeling, leaves us, uh, the situation it leaves us in. Um, now that's, that to me opens up this unknowable center that's, that is potentially in there. Uh, and that's the same process we, we go through when we start to get to know uh, the self, yeah. and the self is an unknowable centre in our psyche. Mm. We can experience the way it meets us in our conscious um, encounter, um, but we can't know what is really going on in there. It's in the unconscious. We cannot see into the unconscious. We can only see the characteristic experiences that we might have when we interact with something that, we, that Jung called the self. Uh, so again, consciousness is left, um, I'm using the word defeated, but uh, in really, you could also say that consciousness then becomes open to the fact that it is living alongside a mystery. And if you accept that, then you now have a, uh, a different way of being, which is a way of seeking relationship to that mystery. So... 19th century physics, no mystery, 
we anything we don't know we'll we'll just work a bit harder and we'll know and they talk about god of the gaps and and so on and so god exists in the gaps but we'll resolve all the gaps one day and then there's there's no need for for god at all quantum physics no you you cannot resolve those gaps those are uh, essential they're integral and same with the the jung psychology you cannot um you cannot live purely out of your consciousness and be a whole being. You must instead start to find relationship to something deeper. I'm, I'm just having um, an epiphany here. And these are concepts that I've been struggling with for years. And you just sort of kind of made it all make sense to me. Um, just now, and I just want to say as an aside, uh, I don't know if I mentioned this at the beginning, but uh, before Dr. Matthews and I started recorded, recording this morning, about a half an hour before our scheduled time, I noticed that my internet was out, and my internet never goes out. I, I live in Chicago, and I have this super fast Xfinity Wi-Fi, and I'm not even using a Wi-Fi connection. I'm using a desktop computer that's plugged right into the router, so it's a wired connection, and it was out and there was a red light on my modem. I've, I've had this modem for years. I've never seen a red light on it. So it got reset and they told me it was back online and everything was working, but the red light was still there. And while you were just speaking, Dr. Matthews, explaining basically God to, and consciousness to me, it finally all makes sense to me now. The red light is now white. <laughs> The red light is gone and it is white. And so I, I had a moment there and uh, everybody got to witness it, whether it was visible or not. But thank you for that. Yeah, uh, because of what, I, what I had in my notes that I'd heard you say is that quantum mechanics demands uncertainty in your worldview. There's an aspect of the unknowable in what you're doing. And I guess I always sort of knew all this, but I had never been able to articulate it. Certainly I, I can't myself and just hear how you put it, it. It all just came together for me. So now the confrontation with paradox, is that basically what you were just explaining? This paradox? It is. Um, so this, and this is this three and the four. So the, this four level, the unknown is an integral part of your attitude. You accept that there is an unknown um, portion in your 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 thinking, and it then it becomes an the unknown then becomes an active potential in your your thinking. Uh, but and then we you can we'll talk a bit more about the autonomous psyche maybe in a minute. But um, now, in order to hold on to that attitude of the unknown. Uh, it just it seems the way we are built, um, the way our consciousness works, is you need to adopt a, a paradoxical um, attitude to whatever it is you're looking at. So if it's in quantum physics, then perhaps it's it's wave and particle paradox duality. Um, but if you're looking at a, a self figure, a Buddha or uh, Christ or someone then again, it's a paradoxical attitude of, you know, Buddha is everywhere and nowhere, or um, the oldest and the youngest, or uh, the most powerful and the weakest, or all, 
all these antinomies. Um, and if you read any of the religious literature, they'll always describe the Godhead in those sorts of, of terms because you're dealing with something that is very meaningful but ultimately unknowable. And to keep that in your mind, um, to keep the, the fullness of what you're looking at, um, and this is then you need to, to hold some kind of paradox onto onto the object. If you go one side, as soon as you go one side and away from paradox, then you have a, a singular view and it's you know and you've destroyed whatever was there before, you've removed the unknown possibility from it and all, all that is left is you know it's that one side. And I, we could get onto American politics if you want at the moment. No, please don't. Because <laughs> there's a terrible one-sidedness forming there. Yes. Yeah, and that's it's it's very dangerous because then then you, I know I I you, you what you're actually doing um, effectively is taking the position of God. You think that you know what what is going on there, yeah. and that's, that's an inflation of the self that you've taken on uh, into your conscious attitude. Um, and you know that's as a, a threeness, as a dynamic energy, uh, that state of mind, that one-sidedness, is very useful. Um, and okay. it's it's not to be. Um, I had a dream right near the end of when I was writing the book, and then in the dream it showed that um, I need to respect both the three and the four. Uh, that will cycle through the, during our our. Uh, every, our every day, um, and so that that you know the capacity to act, you need you need to be able to do that as well. So you need a, a certain amount of threeness. I you can't just sit there in in ambiguity endlessly. You have to right, you know, right. Good point. Move into that, whatever it is. Uh, so we need that the threeness in our life too. Um, but in that deeper picture, we need some relationship to the to a mystery, and that requires to hold to hold that um, attitude onto a mystery, you have to have a, a paradoxical viewpoint. Um, alchemy is f absolutely chock-a-block full of this. And you know, I'm sure a lot of the listeners would be aware of that, that the Latin expression, the um, uh, conjunctio oppositorum, conjunction of opposites. Um, that's how they see the you know, the, uh, that's the Godhead is a conjunction of opposites. It's Mercurius. It's the Philosopher's Stone. Um, so all those ultimate, um, those ultimate uh, goals or um, potencies that um, we draw meaning from, um, they can only be related to through uh, this, this double-sided viewpoint. As soon as you go one-sided, if you think you know what God's will is, you're in trouble. I can attest to that. Yeah, that's when you make big mistakes. Um, but if you keep an open, paradoxical view, and this is this opens up a really big step for Jung, which was um, uh, the dark side of God, and and yeah, the Book of Job, and and these things that he went through. And understood, and there is is always a, aware of these these double sidedness, um, so he's never never falling into uh, 
into a one or is trying not to fall into a one-sidedness and then you're receptive then then you can hear these this soft uh, messages from within uh, and you can move with them uh, but it, that's that takes quite that's individuation that takes quite a, a huge development of of consciousness to achieve that or religious practice if you're working it as a religious life in in some in Buddhism or, or Christianity, etc. So, just moving on in the in the interest of time, um, I wanted to ask you about Wolfgang Pauli, uh, since he he was a collaborator of Jung's. They were they worked together. They, Jung did not analyze him. I mean, there's a whole story of that that is a whole other subject. Uh, and Pauli's dreams are absolutely fascinating. They're a, a lot have been written has been written about uh, his dreams, and uh, hopefully they'll continue to be explored. But why I mentioned him here is that um, now I just lost it. Uh, okay, <laughs> Pali linked physics with the collective unconscious, with the inner world, and I was wondering what you wanted to say about Pali here for the listeners. I know that wasn't yeah. a great lead-in, but uh, I'll let you That's, take it. No, you're fine. I, you mentioned the Pauli effect before. Maybe yeah. we should mention that briefly. Which yeah, is, please. Um, okay. He was he was very noted for um, being around laboratories when accidents happened. So he was a theoretical physicist. He didn't do any work, practical work in a lab. But when he did go into the laboratory. Um, Sometimes the machines would start to not work or explode or whatever. And this was often enough that the other physicists would tease him about the Pauli effect. Um, and by the way, Richard Feynman apparently had a very similar reputation too, someone closer to your home. Um, but Pauli, who is another theoretical physicist, um, and there's a, a a story I was reading uh, the other day where Pauli um, was good friends with Otto Stern, uh, another a physicist from Göttingen, Germany, and um, he destroyed his machine several times or his, his presence coincided with the destruction of his, his machine. So, I, and so I'd like to ask you as a Jungian analyst, what, what do you attribute that to you, to what's going on there? Can I, I, all right. Um, I'll finish. Can I, I'll tell the story, then I'll, I'll try and sure. answer that. Yeah. Um, and so Stern had forbade Pauli from coming into his labs. Um, and then one day, when Pauli was, you know, it was apparently back in Zurich and Stern in in Gottingen, um, and there was a big explosion of the equipment, and they joked to each other, "Well, at least Pauli wasn't here, so it's not the Pauli effect." And then later they find out that Pali was in transit at the train station going from Zurich and he was in Göttingen train station at the time of the explosion on his way to see Bohr in Denmark. That's and so wild. it's it makes you makes you wonder. Yeah. Now as to what's going on, we don't know. To a simple answer, we don't know. Uh, we know that there's a coincidence. Uh, we know that it's too, too often for chance event. We know that there's often a meaningfulness associated with these things. Um, and so there's a phenomenon that Jung called synchronicity, but as we, we 
there's no causal um, mechanism for it. And so we can't actually track it back and piece to piece apart uh, the process, not at the moment anyway. Um, if we try and do that, we usually end up in magical thinking, uh, which is the old kind of medieval way of understanding these things. Um, what I, I think in Pauli's case, it's kind of a trickster synchronicity. So it's it, these quite destructive effects that are coming out. Um, and so the, the meaning there is, is um, uh, it's, that's not so clear in the trickster events. Um, you see them a lot in psychiatric clinics. Schizophrenics often have a lot of these sort of trickster events around them. Um, I've had a few in enough in my, my time. I don't want any more. <laughs> the, and Pat, the, maybe there's something that they could turn into a, um, a more constructive, you know, maybe if Pauli had, um, is too one-sided with his theoretician, you could guess, and he needs to come a little bit more into the experimental world and, and then maybe something would shift in him. So maybe there's, there's some meaning along those lines. That's a very interesting point. Yeah. yeah. Um, but it's, yeah, it's a destructive um, energy. And, you know, this is, this, the, uh, this is, we know the unconscious is capable of these things. Yep. So, Pauli yeah. uh, and quantum mechanics and what is real. So, uh, I wanted to ask you about that. Uh, that came up in uh, a previous episode that I did uh, where I was frustrated. I got very frustrated with my guest because they were talking about the reality of the psyche, which we've all heard that story, von Franz and Jung talking about uh, Jung's patient who said she had been on the moon. And Jung told von Franz she really was on the moon. And von, Fra von Franz said, you, you mean she imagined she was on the moon? And Jung said, no, she really was on the moon uh, as an example of the reality of the psyche. And so Today, in our world today, uh, hearing stories, uh, trying to speak a little generally here, hearing stories about people's experiences with phenomena, and they say these are real experiences, and they have no evidence, they have no proof. So I'm now on this search for what is reality what is real if if it didn't happen physically or in the physical dimension or if somebody thinks it did but they have no evidence that it did i i'd like to hear your thoughts about that mm. um this is a very deep question and what what you make me think of actually is is jung in the red book when he's interacting with Philemon and others. Um, and he says, you know, but you're just my imagination, aren't you? And they get irate and they said, no, we, we're real. And he's, I think that, I, I imagine that's where he was first fully confronted with this problem, of the reality of the, the psyche. Okay. And that, mm -hmm. that these, these contents, whether it's, I mean, you can 
say it's a um, a content of, out of madness. That's that's your that's from a, an external position. You're, you're making that judgment, um, but in that moment, in the engaged in the psyche, this thing is very real, and it's happening to you. Uh, and if you don't take that um, psychic content seriously, as in the red book, they the you know, they said you you're wrong. You're you're you must take us seriously. We are real. And I think that's I'm not conflating that with um, as a material real person, but as a as as a, as that has impact um, and mm. it's not just the impact it has. I mean it it's um, these things are objectively, psychically real. We we don't know how much we can explain or give a. Um, we're so used to giving physical, real pictures of things, aren't we? Yeah. Um, but when you when you get into this these inner figures, um, and they they have reality and they have impact. They have um, they have autonomy. They have you know, you can lose touch with them for a year and come back, and they're still there. Um, we don't, we don't know what form of ex of what medium um, they're persisting in because we can't see into the unconscious. Um, but it doesn't mean they're not a reality. And I think that's what Jung was confronted with, which makes it rather difficult in. So if we can look at, at it psychologically, the reality of the psyche when we're in analysis, but when we're in the everyday world walking around and talking to people that not on a psychological level, right, not analytically, and these people talk about these things as though they were quote unquote real. I don't know where I'm going with this. It's just... I, it's, it's such a... It's, so easy with you know we can use these labels like psychologically look at it and we think we know what we're talking about but often we don't it's just a it's just a, a few words that we picked up to make ourselves feel like we know what's going on um, and on an experiential level which is I think where Jung is really cutting edge in dealing with these inner figures and that exper experience of what he's encountering, that they are real. They have real effects on him, and he has real effects on them. They change as well as, as we change in the interaction. Um, and you can track these things. And if you read the Red Book, I mean, you can, you can see that these things, these things are, are a, a development of, of a real development of a, a psychodynamic what what the medium is in the unconscious, we just we don't know. But something is going. Something clearly is real. Something is clearly going on. Something is. They're stable enough. They're consist consistent enough. They're changing. You're, they change you. They have a viewpoint that's that has effect. Um, this is. We are just learning how to to incorporate this other way of being into into our life because we've. Primarily, we've lived through uh, projecting these figures into the outside world for millennia, and it's only with Jung and, and these new ways of doing things that we're starting to now uh, do the more mystical route and 
as a a larger population take take these things on directly and engage with them and try and understand them and try and see what what they have for us and what we have for them um that's new as a as a psychology that's that's it's radical that's brilliant you you put that brilliantly thank you thank you for that and and that brings us to kind of the end here. Uh, we've been going for over an hour. And I think this is a good place for uh, us to discuss what is in the conclusion of your book. Um, chapter seven, it, it's fascinating. Uh, oh, that's that's earlier. I don't know, we can go longer if you'd like, because uh, we there's a lot we haven't covered. I, I'd kind of like yeah. to go. I don't mind. I mean, there's a we're kind of heading towards, um, and with Pally, we step into the UFO question a little bit because um, yeah. that's and that's that's maybe where, where we could go next. Um, and that also that also finishes off the the book because that's the last bit that I talk about was Jung's writings in the uh, in that chapter uh, on flying flying saucers. I think he called it, didn't he? Yes, I would just like to mention, because I said chapter seven, uh, that is, I took so many notes from that chapter. It's uh, titled Pally's Fantasy of the Piano Lesson. And you you bring up so many things and you have so many wonderful quotes in that chapter. And um, I've been tweeting, uh, I'll tweet some more from that chapter. And by the way, I had mentioned uh, in the beginning that Speaking of Jung will be available on Patreon. And one of the tiers that we're going to offer is all of the preparation that I do, all of the notes that I'm looking at right here, a lot of it doesn't make it into the episode. And what I'm going to do for our Patreons is give them a copy of my notes, all of the prep work that I did for the episode, because as I said, there's a lot of information that doesn't make it into the episode. And I want that to be available to the listeners. So look forward to that. It should be going live sometime this month. So uh, I, I just want you to be able to mention anything that we haven't gotten to before we get to the conclusion. Was there anything that, that you were hoping to discuss that I haven't brought up? Um, I think we're doing very well. I think the, the one point about Pali is, and you've brought up the, this piano lesson fantasy. So there was a question of, you know, how far did he, did he really go in opening to um, this depth psychology? And um, what I would say is Pauli's intention was to find a way of unifying, it's the same problem again, a way of unifying the inner and outer. But he was coming at it as a physicist and of course Jung is coming at it as a, a depth psychologist. Uh, but the conversations that the two of them had are remarkable. I mean, they're incredible geniuses, both of them. Uh, and they're writing letters, sitting down, having all these conversations. I'd love to have heard the conversations, but all we have is the letters that mostly Pauli wrote to you. Uh, and that's in Adam and Ar Archetype. It's, it's, it's hard work, I warn you, um, but very profitable to, to find your way through that. Uh, and... What Pauli ends up doing is he wants to find a, a neutral language between um, psychology and physics, between psyche and matter. So a unifying language that um, 
explains both sides. And I think that's, that's how physicists think. They think in terms of wanting to explain the process and find a language that can explain both sides. Uh, and I think that's, that's kind of where he heads. Uh, and Jung works closely with him in, in the conversations, nudging him along, I think. Um, and in the end, Pauli realizes that it's actually a, a, it's a, it's a problem as much of individuation as anything. And that in order to, you know, you can find these intellectual um, solutions to things, uh, but that doesn't change, that doesn't transform you, that doesn't change you. Uh, and if you're going to heal, I mean, this is one, I think this is one of the major splits in our culture at the moment is this inner and outer, this spiritual world and this material world and the, the split between them. And, you know, for his merit, I mean, Pauli really wanted to do something to heal that split. Um, and in the end, he realizes it's, a, it's an individuation process as much as anything else. And so he, he himself has to heal the split within him. Then he might be able to add something that others might also find interesting as a way of healing that split. Uh, and that's, that's, a quite a, that's a very different way for a physicist to think that he must change his, his, his personality has to transform and then he might heal this, this split. Then it's no longer a question of finding the neutral language so much, but a question of um, being able to suffer that tension between these, this split world enough so that it might resolve. Uh, and he has a, a dream near the end of his work with Jung where um, he's told that he has to move from uh, the letter V to the letter W. And V is, Jung interprets this as V is Roman numeral five. And five as a number usually is a banal, it can be the quintessential, but it, usually it's a banal number of the five senses and five limbs and, and four limbs and a, a head. Uh, kind of. So it's kind of a, it's a very physical, it's a very extroverted number often. Uh, the, whereas the W Jung interprets as a V and another V, so double V. And that would be five and five, which makes 10. And 10 brings you up to um, the five of the inner world and the five of the outer world. So you've now got the two coming together uh, in a wholeness. And there's a, I think it's one of the most remarkable letters that Jung writes. And he says, we exist in a split world because that is the way um, our current zeitgeist is constructed. We can't avoid it. We live split between inner and outer. Um, the man that sees from the 10 is the one, or the woman, is the one who has healed that split within themselves. And so they can see either outside or within. So they know there's, there's these two viewpoints, but underneath that, uh, they've achieved a, um, a wholeness, a unification. So, and I think, so Jung's telling Pauli, he's, he is on the way to individuating and healing that split within himself, um, but it will take time. Then maybe, uh, then, th then he may say something that others go, well, that's really good. And that opens the door for me a little bit as well. And that could be the, 
Yeah. So I, I, that was my where I was heading for the. Um, and the final thing I'd say is, it, um, then Jung writes um, in the uh, his work on UFOs. Um, he writes about how there's there's kind of a um, they're living in the Cold War uh, situation in the fifties. There's um, a real heightened sense of tension and you know the threat of nuclear nuclear war and so on. Um, and he's saying, I don't know if UFOs are real. That's they're very. It, he's fascinated by the possibility, but he he doesn't know. Uh, but what psychologically the way it's spreading across the world and gripping people's fascination so deeply, he knows that there's a, a projection going on as well. And he identifies that it's a projection of the self, that, um, which is often what happens when the world is fragmented and fractured or in anxi great anxiety is when these healing um, symbols of mandalas uh, come into people's dreams. Um, and Jung's wondering if this is what's going on across the world, that uh, there's such a distress um, at the moment that this um, projection is, is being activated uh, and these self figures uh, are coming to hold people and to order them. Um, and I'll tell you a dream. I dream I had... because. Um, was just prior to, um, I just didn't I do the whole dream, it's too too long, but just prior to uh, Russia going into the Ukraine. And so I had no notion of what was about to happen. And I had a dream where I'm in an underground bunker and there's Russian soldiers working away. And they're working on a, um, it's a I, I work at, this is a space um, viewing place. And they're, they're they have these, uh, radar, very old-fashioned, you know, the, you know, the old radar with the little thing that goes around and there's little blips. And they're looking at this this um, radar map in their old equipment, and it's of outer space that the this radar is of. And for them, it's a very precious. And I go to touch it, and they stop me, and they say, "No, no, no, this is a very precious mandala. You can't stop it. You can't touch it. Just be very careful with it, or you'll you'll disturb it." Um, and then they, uh, then they take me over to a table, and at this table, they have all these most toxic uh, chemicals you could imagine, so cancerous tissue and um, you know poisons and all sorts of all the nasties. And they say what we're doing is we're extracting the essence from all of these, because that that will be where the the healing comes from. And. So this is how the unconscious views what we see is is just is horrific and a war and it's all that and etc cetera, etc cetera, and it's terribly split. Um, the unconscious is, sees this as um, this potential for wholeness, uh, and there's a this and what is the darkest in our lives is where the healing factor will come from. Um, if we can, and we need not to disturb that and. And that that dream was gave it was consoling, and it gave me uh, hope. And you know, that's that's how the unconscious to me was seeing. It was also a little bit of a comment on the UFO problem because 
we're back now at a time when things are fracturing a lot. The resurgence in the UFOs has also come. Um, and I make no comment on, you know, what, you know, there's a lot of stories that have a lot of substance to them and I'm no comment there. But um, as a something else that's moving in the background of our psyches that is attempting to bring us whole and heal in the face of this terrible uh, ripping apart, um, that is also happening. It's attempting to make us whole and heal. I'm just writing that down. Uh, that was so beautifully put. I really appreciate that uh, because it is an interest of mine and we have a lot of viewers that are part of the UFO community. And I just want to let them know that in the last chapter of your book, which is titled In Conclusion, Resolving the Split Worldview, you mentioned Jung's writings on the UFO phenomenon, uh, his essay, Flying Saucers, and um, you, you, you get into it more, and those will be in my notes. Um, to, to, to sort of wrap this up, uh, you say it's a new balance because we've lost our inner life. It is, and I, the last thing Jung talks about in the UFO chapter is about um, a series of pictures, and he, there's, he says at the end the most important um, opposites in these pictures is the vertical and the horizontal and the heaven heaven and earth. And I think we've had such a focus on heaven and then the last 500 years we've had such a focus on earth uh, and now it's time to bring the two back into some kind of harmony. And I think that's that's the deeper thing that's going on underneath these, these, um, these difficulties. And Jung saw it in... Um, in his work on, on UFOs and the pictures that people were producing, he saw this intention, unconscious intention, uh, to find this, this healing again between heaven and earth and, and other polarities as well. Um, but again, it's paradox. We need to hold a paradoxical view upon these, these complementary um, opposites in order to do our bit to help them find some kind of union. This was everything I was hoping for and looking for and waiting for, Dr. Matthews. Thank you so much for oh, you, you put that so brilliantly. This this is a very powerful episode for me and I'm sure a lot of our listeners. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity, really. Please visit the website speakingofyoung.com for more information on everything discussed in this episode and to access all of our previous episodes available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Young is also available on YouTube podcasts, which you can access by subscribing to our channel, Jungian Laura. It's free. Just click the subscribe button below. This podcast is made possible by the revolutionary new dream tracking app, Temenos Dream. Discover the hidden meaning of your dreams using symbolism, literature, and mythology. Use the built-in AI illustrator and dream interpreter and share your dreams with others all within the app. Download it by clicking on the link on the episode page or in the description box below and set up a free account today. I created Speaking of Jung over eight years ago as a free podcast. All of our content is still free to access, but it is not free to produce. 
please visit our support page on our website at speakingofyoung.com support to learn about the myriad ways you can help keep this podcast going. And our Patreon should be going live sometime this month. So with my heartfelt thanks to all of our listeners, and especially to our donors, I am Laura London, and you've been watching a very special video edition of Speaking of Young.